invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to start with the last verse of chapter 13 and get to some verses in 14. So if you want to put your finger there, Matthew 13, verse 58. I've been teaching through the book of Matthew, and last week we looked at parables that Matthew taught, and that's what he did in chapter 13. He taught seven parables. Those are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. He was trying to teach them about the kingdom of God. And towards the end of the parables, he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth. And that's where we're going to pick up. But the title of the message is Tested Faith. Someone said, if your faith has not been tested, your faith cannot be trusted. Don't raise your hand, but anybody going through any tests right now of your faith? I am. Health issues and other things that are going on in my life right now are testing my faith. But my confession is God is good all the time. And all the time, what? God is good. So it may be that you're going through some testing times, but it's okay for your faith to be tested. In fact, James 1.3 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You remember James? He's the one that said, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and tests. Be joyful about it. Why? Not because we like the trial, but we love the end result. The testing of your faith produces endurance. So let me read verse 58 and then verses 22 through 24 of chapter 14 just to get into the message today. Verse 58, And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Then we get to verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So it says he's in Nazareth. He's taught in the synagogue. The synagogue was a place of civic opportunity. They had had meetings in there, but it's also a place for the Jews to worship. So Nazareth, he's in the synagogue. He's back at his hometown where his mother, his brothers, his sisters are. And it says they're amazed at his teachings. They're wondering, where does he get this power from? Some of the religious leaders are saying he's getting him from the enemy, from the devil. But they recognize there's something different about him, but they chose to disbelieve. In fact, it says in verse 57, they took offense at him. What had Jesus done that was worthy of offense? Nothing. He had healed people. He had taught parables. He had preached and expounded the word of God from the Old Testament. And they're amazed at his teaching, and yet they're offended by him. And so it gets to verse 58. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. I want you to hear me say this. There are times that Jesus does miracles where belief was not present. For example, we're skipping over the feeding of the 5,000. We'll talk about it here in a minute. But they didn't believe that could happen. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Look, listen, these people have been with us all day. They're hungry. We need to send them away. And Jesus says, Well, you feed them. What do they think about it? Just the material. We've got two fish and five loaves. How are we going to feed anybody on that? What does Jesus do? Tells them, Have them be feeded. Scholars believe there's probably 25,000 people that are following Jesus by this time. You've seen the crowds pick up through the first part of the Gospel of Matthew. And so we get to this place where there's not belief, but what he encountered in Nazareth was willful unbelief. There's a difference. There's a difference in not knowing God yet. There's a difference in your faith growing. But they chose to disbelieve Jesus, willful disobedience, willful disbelief. So because of that, not many miracles were done there. Miracle. How do you define miracle? I define it this way. It's, It's something that only God can do. You ever seen a miracle? You ever seen God do something that only he gets credit for? I have. 
God's still in the miracle-working business. The word is the word dunamis. sounds like our word dynamite. It means the same thing. Miracles are miraculous power. I want you to remember that because I'm going to use the opposite of it a little bit later in the message. Dunamis. Dynamite. Power of God. So the problem in the hometown of Nazareth is they thought they knew him. You ever seen somebody growing up and thought he'll never amount to anything? I don't know if they thought that of Jesus, but by this point they thought he, he wasn't going to amount to what he amounted to. And so Jesus said, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. In his own hometown, they looked at Jesus and said, isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? They only looked with human glasses and didn't see the divinity that was in front of them. Jesus was fully human, but he's also fully God. And so he didn't do many miracles there. He leaves there, travels to the north part of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where we pick up in verse 24 of chapter 14. After the feeding of the 5,000, it says immediately he made the disciples get in the boat. Interesting the word made, indicating they didn't want to get in the boat. The crowds didn't want them to get in the boat. He made them get in the boat. Why? Here's what was about to happen. When you've got 25,000 people that have just seen miracle take place, they're waiting on the Messiah. They're ready to give him the white horse and the crown and let him run into Jerusalem. It wasn't time for that yet. And the disciples wanted to be with him themselves. So when Jesus says, get in the boat, go to the other side, I'll meet you there, they were reluctant. They probably protested. But it says he made them get in the boat. Why? Because Jesus wasn't going to allow the plan of God to be thwarted or sped up. It was going to be on God's timing, not man's timing. And so he makes them get in the boat. And he made the crowd. He sends the crowds away. How do you do that? How do you send 25,000 people away? I don't know if he said, hey, there's no more food. <laughs> it's dark. Go find a place to sleep. But he sends the disciples away. He sends the crowds away. And what does he do? He goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. We know of some of Jesus' prayers, and so it, it informs a little bit about what he might have been praying for. But you ask yourself the question, what did he pray about? Well, he prayed about nine hours. But what was he praying for? Two things I know for sure. He, he told the disciples he was praying for them, not on this occasion, but other occasions. He said, I'm praying for you in your unbelief. Jesus knew what was about to happen the evening that was coming up, overnight hours of the disciples in the boat. And so I think he's praying for the disciples. I think he's also praying for himself. I think he's reconnecting with the Father. Why do I think that? Because what's happening is the people are ready to install him as king, put the crown on his head, and it wasn't God's time. That reminds us of Matthew chapter 4 when he's tempted by the devil. What did the devil offer him? Hey, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Is that what's happening here again? When Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, it said he was being tempted. We know of the three big temptations at the end of it. But it also says in Luke's gospel that the devil left him and waited for a more opportune time. I think the devil was constantly trying to tempt Jesus to thwart the plan of God the Father. So I think he spends this time in prayer. Did he spend all nine hours in prayer? I don't know. Did he take a nap? I don't know. But I know this. Jesus would spend all night in prayer. It was not uncommon. So he goes up by himself to pray. And when it was evening, evening would be about 6 o'clock, he was there alone. So as dusk is coming, as darkness is falling, he sends the disciples away. He sends the crowd away. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And it says when that was happening, while he was praying, he was there alone. The boat was a long distance from the land. If you've got a map in your Bible and you want to look at where they started at, they started at Bethsaida. They're heading over to Capernaum or, or um, a town right beside Capernaum. 
It's not a long distance. They're not sailing all the way across the, the Sea of Galilee. They're not sailing from the north to the south. They're not sailing from the east to the west. They're sailing from a little bit north to a little bit southwest. It shouldn't have taken all night, but the wind was contrary. That sounds calm, doesn't it? The wind was contrary. What does it mean? It means the wind was torturing them. The boat was battered. The 12 disciples were rowing for all their worth, and they're now off course. They shouldn't have been more than about a mile from the shore. They're now, scholars believe, because another, another one of the gospels said there were many stadia away. Three to four miles now off course. And what are they doing? They're paddling for all they're worth. And you know, it's interesting, they're afraid, they're scared to death. And yet, Jesus is going to perform a miracle right in front of them. They had a similar experience back in Matthew 8. So just a few chapters ago, they had had an experience where Jesus was in the boat with them. And they encountered a storm. But now they're encountering a storm without Jesus in the boat. They didn't want to be there to start with. I always wonder sometimes, did any of them say, whose idea was this? Whose idea was it? Who told them to get in the boat? Jesus. So is it possible to be in the center of God's will and still encounter storms? Yeah, I think there's people that think as long, if something bad happens to you, it's because you're out of God's will. It may not be that. It may be that you're right where God planted you. You're right where he told you to be. And still storms come. What was Jesus going to teach them? In this, in this miracle, he's going to teach them, hey, even though I wasn't with you, I came to rescue you. So if you're in the middle of a storm right now, it, you need to ask, God, am I where you told me to be? If you are, stay there and believe him that he's going to, he's going to rescue you. So the disciples are in the boat. Jesus is praying at about the fourth watch. Let's read verses 25 through 27, Jesus walking on the water. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. So keep in mind, the disciples have been paddling this boat, roaring, rowing against the waves and the wind and the contrary storm for about nine hours. It was only about five miles to, to the place they were going. Shouldn't have taken nine hours. What did most of these guys do for a living anyway? They were fishermen. You think they'd ever been in a boat? You think they'd ever been in a storm? Yeah, a few chapters ago they were in a storm with Jesus in the back of the boat sleeping. They woke him up not knowing what he was going to do, but if they're going down, he's going down with them. So in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus leaves the mountain. So what time would this be? The Romans and, and the Greeks counted time from 6 o'clock to 9 p.m. is the first watch. The second watch was from 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch was from midnight to 3 a.m. The fourth watch was what? 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So he leaves them at dark about 6 p.m. It's been nine hours or more because it's in the fourth watch that he walks on the water. Why did he wait so long? Jesus knew. Jesus is God. He knew what they were encountering. He knew what they were going to encounter. Why did he wait so long? It's because Jesus waits for the extremity of need. There's times Jesus doesn't immediately rescue us. He waits on us to ask for help. He waits on us to pray and ask him to come and rescue us. And that's exactly what it is. If you think about the story of Lazarus, remember Jesus is teaching, and Mary and Martha send word to, to Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. It amazes me what the passage says. Upon learning that Lazarus was near death, Jesus waited two more days. What happened during those two days? Lazarus died. By the time Jesus got there, Lazarus was dead. You remember what Mary and Martha said? If you had only been here. And Jesus weeps. 
not over the death of Lazarus. He knew what was going to happen. But he weeps over their unbelief. He weeps over their grief, their pain, their heartache. So the same thing happens here. He waits until the extremity of need. He waits until they are worn out at the end of themselves. They've done all they can, and they're getting further from the shore instead of closer to it. It's still in the middle of the night. It's dark. Dawn hadn't happened yet. And here comes Jesus walking on the sea. Jesus didn't walk on the sea to teach them how to do it. He wasn't given lessons on here's how you barefoot on the Sea of Galilee. Anybody ever been on the Sea of Galilee? I've been in a boat seven times on the Sea of Galilee. We, we sail out into the middle of the ocean or to the middle of the sea, turn the engines off, have a worship service on the Sea of Galilee. I love it when we do it on Sunday morning. As the sun's coming up, it's just an awesome time of worship. That's, that mood got broken probably my fourth trip over there. We're out on the Sea of Galilee having a worship experience, and here comes skiers by us. Motorboat. You don't expect to see that in the Holy Land. They weren't barefoot, and I think that would have been more appropriate because that's what Jesus was doing. He's barefoot and without the benefit of a boat. So I've seen this happen. I've been on the sea. I've seen what can happen at the end of the Sea of Galilee where the mountains form a V, and if the wind blows through that, it just is like a vortex. It just increases the intensity of the wind. That's what the disciples have been battling, and they are terrified. Well, now they see Jesus walking on the sea, and it says they're terrified, saying it is his ghost. So if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, all right, we're about to die here at this storm. We can't get any closer to the sea, to the shore. We're getting washed away. We're worn out. We can't paddle much longer, and now there's a ghost. And Jesus knew that they were afraid because they cried out in fear. He immediately spoke and said, take courage. It is I. When Moses asked God back in Exodus chapter 3, when God says, you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, Moses said, who do I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God said, I am. So throughout scripture, we see God refer to himself as I am. Jesus does the same thing on the Sea of Galilee. Disciples are afraid, are scared to death. They're about to die, and here comes a ghost to finish them off. And they say, who is it? And he said, don't be afraid. Take courage. For it is I. Don't be afraid. I want you to hear that this morning. If you're in the place of calamity right now, if you're in a place where it seems like everything's falling apart around you, if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, as the song said we just sang, run to the Father. That's where you'll be safe. When you're in the place of obedience, you're in a place of safety. Third point, and I call this one Peter in the water. I could have said Peter on the water because for a little while he was. But Peter in the water. Let me read the rest of this chapter, verse 28 and following. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. So the disciples are worn out. They think they're seeing a ghost, and the ghost speaks. It's not a ghost. It's Jesus walking on the water. And Peter says, if it's you. And I don't think Peter was saying, prove that it's you. I think Peter's saying, because it's you. If it's you, Lord, call me. Command me to walk out on the water. Why do I think that? But I think if there was disbelief at this point, Jesus would not have asked him to come out on the water. 
I think Peter's basically saying, I'd rather be on the water with my Savior, with Jesus, than in the boat without him. So he says, command me to walk on the water. So Jesus commands him. And Peter gets out and walks on water. How far did he go? I don't know. Was it a step or two? I don't know. But at some point, he's, the thoughts going through his mind is, look what I'm doing. I'm walking on the water. But then he caught the wind. And he thought, took his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the wind and thinks, this, this can't happen. And he starts to sink. As soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus and focuses on the wind, he begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me, which is what Jesus came to do to start with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus rescues Peter. He says, Lord, save me. Jesus takes hold of him. But he says, you of little faith. It's not the first time he said that. He said that back in Matthew 8 when they encountered the storm that he was in the boat. And basically what he's saying is, have you not seen me heal people? Have you not seen me cast out demons? Have you not heard what I've been saying? Have you not heard me say that God's going to take care of you more so than the birds of the air or the lilies of the field? Are you not getting it? Has the night bulb not gone off yet or turned on yet? You of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, why did Peter doubt? Because of the storm. Peter doubted because what he was doing was supernatural and it was impossible to something he'd never done before, but he had encountered storms before. So that's why he doubted. But when you're walking in faith, there's no room for doubt. James chapter 1, verse 6 puts it this way. He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. How appropriate for Peter at this moment. Peter, you're just like the surf of the sea. You had enough faith to get out of the boat and to take a step or two or maybe more. But at some point, you focused back on the wind and took your eyes off of Jesus. You of little faith. But I've got to give Peter credit. He finally gets it, y'all. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the, revela the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter, we've got to give him credit, because most of the time when Peter opens his mouth, it's to stick both feet in, right? But Peter becomes one of the leading disciples, a leader in the first century church. He gets it. He, he actually says, so the proof of your faith. Your faith is going to be proved by going through testing times. And when he gets in the boat, what happens? The wind stops. The thing that was battering them for probably nine hours or close to that stops. Jesus is in the boat with them now. And the disciples do two things. They say, first, first of all, they worship him. They bow down and worship him. The word, the word proskuneo, it means to kiss towards God. They were beginning, the light bulbs beginning to come on of who Jesus was. In Matthew 8, when he calms the storm at sea where he's in the boat, they look at each other, what kind of man is this? They're finally coming to grips with what kind of man he is. They worshiped him, and they said, you certainly are God's son. This is the first time that I find that the disciples acknowledged he was his son. Now, at the baptism, what happened? When Jesus was baptized back in Mark, Matthew 4, the Father speaks out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. When Jesus cast the demons out of the man, you remember what the demon said? What do we have to do with you, Son of God? 
So the disciples are finally realizing this isn't a ghost, this isn't a phantasma, which is the Greek word. This is the Son of God, and we are in his presence. And what do you do when you get in the presence of God? You worship. So they're having a worship service on the Sea of Galilee themselves. And so I want to close by asking the question, okay, what is faith? If our faith's going to be tested, what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11, we're going to end with Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 6. Let me get there in my Bible. Hebrews 11, verse 1. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Then verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is who he said he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So what's faith? True faith is living in absolute certainty that what Jesus said will come to pass. True faith is believing in absolute certainty what the Bible says is true and reliable. True faith is believing with all your heart that what God the Father has promised will come to pass. True faith is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were told to bow down and worship an image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they didn't do it. So he threatens them. I'm going to cast you into the burning fire, into the furnace. Remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said? We believe that God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship your image. That's the kind of faith God's calling us to. That's the kind of faith that grows in you as you walk with Jesus. So faith. The word faith means persuasion, moral conviction, reliance on Christ for salvation. It's the assurance. It's the substance. It's the thing that supports you. Your faith is what has been tapped down into the ground. If you live close to the beach, you've heard piles, pilings being driven into the ground. Why do they do that? Because they're going to put a structure on top of those pilings, and if you don't put the pilings down and you don't get them deep enough into the, into the ground, what's going to happen? First time the wind blows, and I've heard the wind does blow here. We've seen it. We've seen four feet of water in this auditorium five or six years ago after Hurricane Matthew. We've seen roofs blown off the building. If you don't put your foundation down, you're going to get blown away. They're rebuilding the, the pier at Surfside. And one, you, know, you could say, well, we're going to try to save money. So instead of putting pilings way down, we're just going to use pool noodles. As ridiculous as that sounds, that's what some of us do in our Christian life. How deep is your faith? Well, God is going to grow your faith. When you first trust Christ as Lord and Savior, you probably only have faith for one little step. But the longer you walk with God, the more you realize faith is not about sight. It's about knowing God. So faith, first of all, is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. The proof, the evidence of things not seen. Faith believes even though you haven't seen it because you believe God. Noah, when God said, you're going to build an ark, I'm sure Noah said, what's an ark? Noah had never seen a boat of that size. Why am I building the ark, God? Because it's going to rain. Noah would have said, what's rain? It hadn't rained on earth yet, but it's about to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Noah spent close to 120 years building an ark. You think people came by sometime and said, Noah, what you doing? I could just see a grandfather bringing his grandson by. <laughs> what are you doing? Building an ark. Granddaddy, what's an ark? <laughs> well, I don't know. Ask him why he's doing it, because it's going to rain. Granddad, what's rain? We don't know that either. 
Noah, uh, Noah's lost his mind. Noah's gone a little crazy. His elevator isn't going all the way to the top. Some of his lights are burned down on his Christmas tree. That's Noah. But what did, why did Noah build the ark? Because God told him to. And he put up with 120 years of probably people saying, why are you doing this? Because God's going to destroy the earth, and you need to be on this ark. So faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction, the proof, the evidence of things not seen. You ever heard people say, well, i got to see it to believe it. That's why we call Thomas, Doubting Thomas. He had heard Jesus had been raised from the dead, but I'm not going to believe it until I see it with my own hands and touch him. I want to put my fingers into his nail-pierced hands. But knowing that, we close with verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. There's that word dunamis again, except it has an A at the front of it. Dunamis means dynamite, miraculous power. But it's impossible. There's no power. You're unable to do what God's called you to do without faith. And you cannot please him. For anyone who comes to God must believe that he is. So when you come to God, you have to believe that he exists. You have to believe that he is who he says he is. And that he rewards those who diligently seek him. What's the reward? Well, the first reward is salvation. But the biggest reward is him. As you diligently seek God, he allows you to know him. So I want to close with just a few questions. What do you believe in God for? Don't answer that out loud, but think about that. What is it God's laid on your heart right now that is requiring faith? What part of your Christian life requires you to believe God? Where is your faith? Second, what are your obstacles? That night for the disciples, it was wind. For you, it may be finances. It may be health. It may be relationships. But there's obstacles. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Your faith will be tested. Do you see proof? What I mean by that? Can you look back over your life and see where God has done what God said he would do? It's easier to face the trial now when you remember and recount. Look how many times God has been faithful. He's never been unfaithful. And last, are you diligently seeking him? Are you diligently seeking him? Paul Harvey said, if you don't live it, you don't believe it. And that's the rest of the story. Let's pray together.